Thank you, Brian. If you have your Bibles, friends, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I just want to commend Deb and the board and all the leaders of Westminster Christian School. And uh, I, I'm not sure if we're all really fully aware at how uh, wonderful this past year has been in terms of God sustaining our church, but also uh, WCS. It's rather remarkable, and I think I'm still catching up with that. Special shout out to the soccer team. I mean, amen. A couple months ago, I, I went on a Wednesday night to youth group service, uh, to their meeting, and there was a gym night, and I wasn't planning on this, but I, I played soccer for an hour and a half. I didn't collapse. I needed two weeks to recover. But one thing I was thinking to myself was, these guys are pretty good. I consider myself, you know, somewhat athletic, and I had to walk 50% of the time, and I just couldn't catch up with them. So to hear them go undefeated, uh, it, it needs no explanation. They are truly talented, and, and praise God for that. But that's not why you've come. <laughs> so if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And if you're there and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 7. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, only a couple sermons here to go for First Peter as we come to a conclusion. And just as a recap or a summary of our journey here, Peter's addressing exiles, Christians who are called sojourners, because our true homeland is not here on earth, but in heaven in eternity, uh, are called out as God's elect people. Peter says earlier in the letter, you are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. But these people who are now in modern day Turkey at that time are suffering for being followers of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about last week, that was part and parcel of what it was to be a Christian. It wasn't, oh, are you Christian and have you ever suffered? But it was one and the same. Now these exiles, these sojourners, were suffering from some type of unknown fiery trial that was pervasive across their land. And Peter's encouraging them that even while you suffer, even during sufferings, which is true for us today also, that we need to rejoice we saw this last week and throughout the letter because suffering for the sake of Christ has wonderful value and purpose, some of which includes the testing of the genuineness of your faith. 
That purifying process, like when you put gold or silver in the fire and all the impurities and dross come to the surface and is wiped away, this process, although it's painful at the time and nobody enjoys it while they're experiencing it, Peter is saying, oh, that has eternal value you might not understand. But it is a cause for rejoicing because it is a testing that proves and shows the genuineness of faith that you belong to him. And also rejoicing because the Father is preserving you in this journey by his spirit and is preparing us for final glory in heaven. Well, today's passage continues in the context of last week's passage of suffering, but is now directed towards certain groups in the church, namely elders and leaders who are called to lead a suffering church well. But then later in the passage, how the congregation needs to respond to their elders. And then finally, about what guiding principles ground the whole church and the whole structure. So from verses 1 through 7, the passage outlines, I think, three straightforward exhortations. Number one, an exhortation for elders. And then number two, an exhortation for the flock. And then finally, an exhortation for everyone. So if you look at your Bibles, now to the first, an exhortation for elders. And I think the passage is weighted more towards this first section regarding leadership. So although I'll cover all three, I'll spend most of my time today, this morning, here in this section. So we start with verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter is an apostle. He introduces himself as one of Jesus Christ. And now he's exhorting the elders scattered all across this very large region. And he's exhorting them. Now, what does it mean to exhort? It simply means to urgently implore someone for a desired response, a call for action. But Peter is also encouraging them that he is also an elder, a fellow elder. He is not holding them uh, to some standard that he has not had to endure and model himself. That he has witnessed the sufferings of Christ, verse 1. Witnessed his resurrection and glory. And has obviously participated in the suffering Christ calls us to as we follow him. As he talked about in chapter 2. But Peter also realized the difficulty behind following Christ and becoming a leader. God's grace and expansive mercy is most definitely required to serve as an elder of the church. By default, of course, and again, coming from last week's passage on suffering... Elders need to be models, to be a model of those who suffer well for Jesus Christ. Now, Peter's exhortation to these elders, elders just in the Greek presbyters, where we get our name for our denomination and our form of government, his exhortation to these elders include what is expected of them in regard to their specific role, but not just their duties and their role, but also to their character, to their hearts, as they carry out their roles. And so we're going to see both categories here in chapter in verses 2 through 3. What is expected of these elders in their roles, but also the characteristics that are behind them. So look at your Bibles, verse 2 and 3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
Now, we're going to list these responsibilities one by one. Number one, it's this. Peter says, shepherd the flock among you. Shepherd, shepherd the flock. Sinclair Ferguson notes that embedded in this description of a shepherd, or in the Latin translation of the word is a pastor, uh, that Ferguson knows that that's, this is a not, not a light title 2,000 years ago or a light calling in that context. But a shepherd, a pastor, is to be an experienced Christian, a spiritual man, a seasoned man who has gone through all of life's experiences and trials and suffering. A shepherd, by default, is a teacher of the word, the Bible tells us one who can aptly teach the scriptures and sound doctrine, but also one who can also root out error and false doctrine, which was pervasive in their time. That is part of what it is to be apt to teach in Paul's descriptions for elders in 1 Timothy 3. Shepherds are, of course, called to feed the sheep, as one does as he teaches and preaches the scriptures. Peter is intimate with this calling, since during Peter's restoration, Jesus repeatedly says to him, to Peter, feed my sheep. Oh, do you love me, Peter? Yes, of course I do, Lord. Then feed my sheep. It is a prominent responsibility for being a leader of the church. But shepherds not only feed, but they protect the sheep from danger and from any and all waywardness of the flock. And even carelessness. I saw a funny clip earlier this year, a short video about a minute long of a boy shepherd or at least some uh, local farmhand, I think it was from a European country, who found a sheep in a deep but thin crevice on their land. The crevice went on for many yards ahead, but somehow this sheep in this very narrow gap in one spot had 90% of his body stuck and he was head first. And so the boy grabs his hind legs that are barely coming out of this crevice. And after about five minutes, he slowly yanks him out, only for the startled sheep to hop around in fear for several more yards. And like Michael Jordan, just gets some air and is just flying and goes straight back in to the crevice, head first. <laughs> and everyone is just laughing and throwing up their hands. I was laughing at that because I could, I could think of my former pastors who discipled me while growing up at church probably thought that this video would be the perfect metaphor for my journey as sheep. There he goes again. But I can't be the only one here who sees himself in this jumpy and clumsy sheep. Most of the time, sheep just repeatedly do the same things over and over again. And they need godly elders to help steer them right and sometimes, if needed, yank them out of trouble and error. Elders have the difficult task to do so when nobody else would ever want to. Lastly, elders are to shepherd the flock among them. Of course, elders can counsel and help other Christians and disciple people anywhere, but they prioritize leading those among them in their own congregation. Now to the next term in verse 2. To be overseers is part of the role and responsibility as in exercise oversight. A spiritual oversight and authority over the flock is required. Shepherds or pastors, overseers or other terms like elders and bishops in the New Testament are all interchangeable in the scriptures. They speak of the same office of elder. Now this Greek term for overseers, episkopos, 
We get the words telescope and microscope from the root word there, means what? To look at something with the most careful scrutiny. Daniel Doriani notes that this is not scrutiny in trying to find faults of members, but in being careful with all the things pertaining to the church and the spiritual life of members. And so the spiritual responsibility for elders is high and therefore is a weighty role that this is why overseers need to be experienced and seasoned Christians, not new, and known for their ability by God's grace to oversee God's people well. And then finally, later in verse 3, we see that third role to be an example, end of verse 3. Now, this is Peter, of course, who was a fellow elder telling these others to be an example, and he's not an inexperienced advisor giving these men some theoretical advice that he picked up at Barnes & Noble. No, he's lived through this experience, the ups and downs of what a leader should be. And so he understands the weightiness of what's at stake. But backtracking now, after we've covered these three roles and responsibilities, let's look back at verse 2 and 3 at the character behind these called out elders. Look back at verse 2. Elders are not to serve under compulsion, but willingly. They're not just mere people pleasers, though I guess they asked me, so I got to do this. I don't want to let them down. But one with the willful servant's heart. An elder should have a desire to be an elder for the church. But there's a difference between not wanting to be an elder because you feel weak or inadequate. Versus not having any desire to serve in this manner at all. There's a difference between those two. Willingness to serve includes your status as weak and inadequate sinners. God uses these types of people for a purpose, to reveal God's strength and glory in the end and through. But there is a return on investment here, even in the here and now. Samuel Rutherford, Scottish theologian in the early 1600s, said something along the lines of, when elders go out to serve others, they typically get, typically get something spiritually in return. As another presbyter would say, when watering others, our own souls are watered also. Now, this is very true for elders, but I'm sure just as true for anyone here that goes out of their way to serve another brother or sister in Christ in our midst. It might seem like a burden to others, but for you, your soul is being watered too. How many have I talked to you over the last seven months or so that I can just tell that your soul is nourished when you serve those in need, when there's a shoulder to cry on, when there's a Galatians 6 obedience and say, I want to share your burdens. Nobody comes up to me and say, did you notice that I did all these things? Do you think God is impressed? Nothing like that has to be said because there is a return on that investment amongst the people of God. I don't even think I need to ask you to tell me if this is true of you because this happens all the time at WPC. When we seek to serve others because of Christ and his work in us, we are blessed and nourished ourselves. The second characteristic is not for shameful gain, it says there, but eagerly, meaning not greedy for attention, popularity, or even money. In South Korea, and I'm sure in many other nations too, over the last maybe three decades, becoming a pastor became so prestigious 
and certain churches became these mega wealthy institutions. Pastors would be treated like rock stars almost. There are stories of megachurch pastors being picked up by limo drivers and professionally driven to the church building. And because people would clamor around them so much in person, like a rock star, he would have to be whisked away shortly after and protected. It just seems so backwards. I told the elders here, maybe we could kind of install that here at WPC, and they said no. But it just seems so backwards, doesn't it? Now, there are many humble and godly pastors in South Korea, most definitely. But there are tendencies in all cultures that desire to become an elder for shameful gain. Again, for attention, perhaps, popularity, influence, and control of others, and even, sadly, to extort money, sadly, we've seen over the centuries. And I think any man can and would be tempted by these things, of course. But I was certainly glad that most of my ministry experience as a pastor was that of little means. During that process, I probably grumbled much. But looking back at that now, I'm so thankful that that was my beginning experiences. Because startup church plants rarely have enough money to provide, not even a part-time salary sometimes. But I'm so thankful that I got to live the church planting life with other pastors in the same boat, just trying to make ends meet, having very little, but still rejoicing because we believed what we were doing was for the Lord. That's good and proper training and sets proper expectations that you're not doing this for shameful gain. One of my members from that church plant was talking to a seasoned pastor of more than 30 years about me and my situation particularly the financial situation and how the congregants were so concerned for me to provide for me. And this seasoned pastor said simply to this member, this is okay for now, don't worry. He needs to learn this for a season of his life, what it is to have little. And this member reported back to me what the seasoned pastor who I know personally and I respect much, but I kind of had two responses. <laughs> Number one was, well, that's easy for him to say. <laughs> but then also number two, he's right. That season had taught me contentment with having much or having little and that an attitude of dependence, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, Philippians 4. But speaking about ruling elders in our denomination of the PCA, well, they don't get any compensation so you know that money has nothing to do with their serving the Lord in this way. As Daniel Rogers reminded us in our Sunday school this morning, elders are not just hired help, but children of God who desire to serve. But as Peter warns, elders, all of them, need to check their hearts continually. What is motivating them to serve in this way in God's church? So brothers and sisters, Hopefully you've been doing this all along, but you need to pray for your elders. That these elders would resist the devil, next week's sermon, and to keep trusting in Christ, even when they are tempted to despair at what they see in the spiritual mirror before them and their feelings of inadequacies 
or feeling like I can't carry these burdens any longer. You need to pray for them. Children here watching on the stream or in here in person, however young, learn how to pray and support your elders now. Remind your mom or dad during prayer time this week to remember to pray for these men that seek to serve the Lord and his church well. It's never too early to start that. Come up to me after service and tell me you've been praying for me and for the session and elders. I'd be so encouraged of that and I'd pass that along to our ruling elders, to the other leaders of the church because we need your prayers. You're important to us in this body regardless of age and we want to cherish you as you hopefully cherish your leaders. And at this point in my season with WBC, about seven months now, I think I could say this with, about our elders without them thinking I'm buttering them up, but I think they're godly. I think they are godly men. And these men, I think, break their backs for the church. <clears throat> and quite normal for any other church, they are often unfairly criticized. But over my seven months here, Oh, they do not grumble much, if at all. And they humbly go about their way, seeking to serve the Lord with their all. You only see, I think, 2% of what they do. I've had the privilege to see most of everything, but not all. I've been humbled and impressed, as Dr. Nielsen said several weeks ago, by their love for WPC. their desire to do the right thing, even in the midst of their imperfections and limited ways. And in a way, I'm concerned for them because they're not superhuman and can't get to every last need of the church in a perfect, perfect way, but yet they feel that way, church. So church, we need to pray for them and support them Yes, for them to fulfill these roles and duties and responsibilities and with godly character, but we need to support them and pray for them. Now to these elders, the last characteristic, number three, is not domineering. Elders are to be humble, slow to anger, gentle, patient, and so forth. Timothy 1, 7 through 9, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-control, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And the passage says an elder is God's steward. Elders are not appointed to dominate people with an overbearing persona, but to serve and to be models to the flock. And so back to the context of 1 Peter, oh, leaders need to prepare the flock for the fiery trial ahead. 
but they'll be the first to suffer. You think of the early disciples and apostles, you think of the reformers in the 15 and 1600s, leaders get attacked first usually and have to model to the flock how one should suffer for the sake of Christ, not losing hope and not walking away from what God has called them to do and all the while rejoicing. One theologian said, quote, if elders don't have the experience of suffering, how can they lead when things get rough, end quote. I think of it as similar to a sea captain. If you've, ever, if you've never experienced a rogue wave before, those super waves that come crashing abruptly at sea, how can you be entrusted to lead the crew out during stormy waters? Now, as you mentioned last week, biblical suffering includes the whole gambit of ways one can suffer for the sake of Christ. It's not just physically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and to all different degrees, of course, but at least some type of experience suffering. I remember one well-known author say, I, I, don't, I, I might be messing up and paraphrasing here, but I don't want to belong to any church where the pastor hasn't experienced any suffering in his life. Well, because there's value in having an elder who has endured and persevered. Now, in conclusion on this portion of these characteristics of an elder, listen to Scottish Presbyterian David Dixon, who shepherded for over 30 years in Scotland in the 1800s. And I read this as an encouragement to our elders here and to those who are candidates to become elders here in a couple of weeks. He says, quote, the office and work being spiritual, it is necessary that elders should be spiritual men. It is not necessary that they be men of great gifts or worldly position, of wealth or high education, but it is indispensably necessary that they be men of God, at peace with him, new creatures in Christ Jesus, engaged in the embassy of reconciliation. They must be themselves reconciled. He says we must love the master and the work for the master's sake. If we do live it, it will be a happy service because it is a willing service. The joy of the Lord will be our strength. When elders endure and shepherd the flock and are concerned about faithfulness rather than worldly success, they look anticip to anticipation of verse four. If you look at your Bibles, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. O to you elders here, or future elders. Dixon goes on to say that elders don't have many years to do this work on earth. And so he says, let us do it heartily with all our might and always as to the Lord. And then he quotes, because when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Elders are precisely under shepherds of the great and chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, who shepherds not only the flock of the church, but over her leaders also. And so sometimes it might not seem worth the pain, you elders or future elders here, not worth the suffering and sometimes headache of being in this position, but this time on earth is nothing compared to eternity and the reception and the crown of glory in Jesus Christ. May that encourage you. So that's Peter's exhortation to the elders and now segues into the next two. And again, I'm gonna be very brief with these. Number two, an exhortation for the flock. This is to our congregation, verse five. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. 
For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Likewise, just as Peter exhorted the elders, he now exhorts, urges the flock. You who are younger is not just those who are chronologically younger, but signifies the flock in this case who are in submission to the elders. Elders who lead, congregation the younger, submit. The term subject there is defined by one Greek dictionary as to be or be inclined or willing to submit to orders or wishes of others or showing such inclination. And this is the same Greek word Peter uses in chapter two, when believers are for the Lord's sake to be subject to human authorities, institutions, to employers, wives, the husbands. And the same principle that we talked about in chapter two holds true for elders, that if elders are acting in evil and disobedience and causing you spiritual harm and distorting the truth and the gospel and the word, in calling you to then disobey God, we are not to be subject to that kind of leadership either. Just as in husbands that might do evil with abuse and infidelity and so forth. But those are the exceptions. The principle guiding this is to subject yourself to the leadership of elders. How? Peter says, by clothing yourself in humility. The word there is not just casually draping something over you, but the Greek word says to tie on, to fasten to tie on clothing to yourself, being clothed firmly in humility as a driving principle. The reason why it might be so hard to submit often is because we have not tied on Christ and the humility we find in him. And he says there, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, an allusion perhaps to Isaiah 57 where God revives the spirit of the lowly but also to Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty or arrogant or superior spirit before a fall. Agreeing to disagree can happen all the time at a, any given church is understandable, but submission to elders is biblical and right and is proof of Christ's humility in you in the grand scheme of things. And now finally, the last exhortation, number three, an exhortation for all of us, for everyone, including elders. Peter continues the humility theme, verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You see, for elders, for deacons, for new members, to older, to new converts, to seasoned believers, to pastors, to staff workers, to volunteers in nursery, to children's ministry, to men's and women's group, to outreach and mission committees, to those who are involved in music and so forth, we are all called to humble ourselves there in verse six. Under God's mighty hand is just a picture of his strength and sovereignty. And he'll exalt us in his good pleasure in time, most likely a picture of our final glory in heaven. And while we humble ourselves, meaning we take the initiative to do so by the aid of the Holy Spirit. We are also called to cast out our nets like fishermen would do back then and even in many parts now, but instead cast all our anxieties before him because, and this is the reminder we all need as we leave this place, he cares for you. Theologians note that grammatically verse six grounds verse seven meaning only when we humble ourselves before the Lord and others do we realize the need in the first place to cast all our cares and anxieties unto him. What do I mean by that? Well, the proud 
and the prideful want to solve things on their own and not live a dependent life on God, but to simply say, God, I'm spent. Oh, I have nothing left in me. My fears and anxieties, they consume me. And all I can do, Lord, is humbly come before you in urgently and in utter desperation. And God doesn't say, well, have you earned my intention? Have you earned my peace? Have you earned my care? Have you been good enough lately? Rather, he invites you, oh, all of us who are heavy burdened and to say, oh, find rest in me. Really quickly, Nan, as we conclude, how can we apply this simply? I'll work backwards in the passage. For all of us, for everyone, casting our anxieties on him is simply praying without ceasing. In reliance and in humility, not psychologically praying something every second of your life, but your desire to commune with him this way continually through the ordinary means of grace, through prayer. This is a way to lift these anxieties off of you and receive the peace of Christ that transcends all understanding, also in Philippians 4. So instead of waiting to pray right before bed and even for our children here, or before a meal, pray whenever you have that moment, in the car, at work, in between meetings, during meetings, while you brush your teeth, <laughs> the simplest of things to say, God, I just want to speak now and pray and listen and commune with you. Larry and I, an elder here, would meet most Thursdays uh, to pray for an hour or so in my office. But sometimes we get sidetracked and we talk about different topics of the church and people, and Larry will always just say, okay, let's, let's stop and just pray for that right now. I have a brother named Kyle Edwards, the clerk of our presbytery, who I served with for the last year and a half before coming to Westminster. I, I learned this from him. I would always say, oh, can you please pray for this, A, B, or C? And instead of saying, okay, I'll pray for you, he knows that he will forget. <laughs> so he always had this pattern of saying, okay, how about right now? <laughs> so that he wouldn't forget. And he would pray right on the spot. This is casting all our cares and anxieties unto him. Pray with others, O church. Share the burden, share the load, and pray for each other's anxious thoughts and remind one another that we, that God cares for you individually but also corporately. And for humility, seek to grow in grace, cultivate a culture of grace we talked about last Sunday afternoon. Laying our pride down and being humble, this goes for everyone as we seek to live out our union with him. Friends, you could never lose when you're more humble. You'll never lose anything by receiving grace over self-righteousness and pride. I get it. Self-centeredness versus other-centeredness, pride over humility, that can actually feel fulfilling often because it feeds our default sinful nature to its core. But oh, the mighty hand of the Lord upon us, allowing us to enter in his grace far outweighs any temporary fleshly fulfillment, hands down. And so, of course, this is the gospel. When we look to Christ, who humbly and willingly submitted to the will of the Father, who chose to serve others instead of himself and died the gruesome death for our sake and to take the penalty and wrath that we deserve, when we remember that and realize we're united to him in faith, oh, that'll humble you real quick 
and is precisely why we need to keep the gospel front and center if we were to apply any of these things in our lives. For the flock, of course, hearing this might be difficult. There could be past wounds, hurts, or expectations not met from submitting to elders. But despite all of this, you are called to do so. And so God, so ask God, Lord, sift through my heart to find any error in my ways. Did my pride get in the way of my desire to submit to elders leading the church? Did personal differences mar my opinions of them? And to ask God, Lord, help, how can the gospel of my life compel me to see the way I ought, compelled to live in humility? Friends, that is no easy task, and it's quite daunting, actually. But there is much grace offered when we, by the true aid of the Spirit, see our pride, pride removed and humility increase as the grace of God enters into the fray with us. And we can then show grace towards our leaders, too. Finally, an application for our elders. Oh, this is no easy task and calling. For future elders and even present elders, you know this. There is no glamour or prestige. This is a response to a calling of suffering for his sake, even in the midst of hard circumstances while leading. And I'll close with this quote from Sir Clare Ferguson. He says, don't go into eldership because what you'll get out of this, but because of what your desire in your heart to put into this. And out of humility, and he says, even expecting the humiliation of what may come, end quote. What a helpful and sobering reminder. So remember that call. Remember what's at stake. But as King David said in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. The title there says shepherding and submitting, not lording over and rebellion and in rebelling. Shepherding and submitting. All while remembering that this all belongs to God and to Christ, who is the head and final authority of his church. We say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are grateful for elders that you have appointed Westminster. We are grateful for their sacrifice, their selflessness, their care for the flock. We're thankful for the grace and patience over their imperfections and even sinfulness but we are grateful for them and their diligent work for your kingdom and for these people. We are grateful for the flock, oh, that you care for us and all our anxieties, that so many here want to see your kingdom advanced and for your name to be glorified. But Lord, we know that there are so many here that are just so broken in this season, so desperate for grace, for community, for the love of the sheep and the flock. Lord, would you allow them to cast all their cares unto you, for you do care for them and us. Father, we need the gospel to stand firm, oh, to lead, but also to submit, and to turn to you for all things in humility, for we are helpless without you. So help us, O oh God, and, and to not neglect this holy word. We pray this. In the loving name of Jesus Christ, amen.